0: Morning. Morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two, and I'm going to start at verse fifteen. Galatians 2, starting at verse 15, says, this is not the word of man, but the word of God. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now or the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we need you to open the eyes of our hearts this morning. um, Because if you don't do it. (laughs) If your spirit does not sovereignly do a work in our hearts that would open our eyes to the beauty of Christ, the glory of your self-revelation, God, we will not see you. We will miss you, and we don't want to miss you this morning. Father, we, um, we are in deep waters here in this text. And I pray that the truth that we are justified through faith in Christ and not by works of the law, that that truth would be impressed upon our hearts so deeply that it would produce joy, that it would produce faith, that it would produce peace, that it would produce obedience. As always, we pray that you would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, uh, Pastor Deuce spoke on the idea of contending for the gospel. Uh, we, he left off at verse 14. Um, and uh, in the context for our passage today, uh, Paul has confronted Peter. Uh, Peter the Apostle, because they were up in Antioch and Peter was not acting in accordance with the gospel as it as it related to how he related to the Gentiles, those who were non-Jews. So Peter had received the revelation of God that this salvation was not only a thing that God was doing in Israel, but um, in Christ, in and through Christ, it was something that was being revealed to the nations, not only Israel, but also Gentiles. Paul, uh, Peter, uh, had a hard time accepting that, and Pastor Deuce went through Acts chapter 10, where uh, Peter had the encounter with Cornelius, and uh, it seems that Um, God is doing something uh, bigger than what Peter had imagined. So Peter has this vision um, where all of these uh, forbidden birds or animals had appeared. And God said, kill and eat. Uh, Don't call unclean what God has cleansed. And so Peter has gone through this process of understanding, okay, it's not simply about the, the old ceremonial law or just the law of Moses. But now I'm freed up to actually interact with Gentiles because the salvation is also for Gentiles. But what wound up happening is that uh, when it says certain men came from James earlier in verse 12 of Galatians 2, certain men came from James, it seems as though they were putting pressure on Peter to not interact with the Gentiles and fellowship with them in the same way that he had been prior. And what Paul did was he confronted Peter on his hypocrisy to his face in front of everybody and said, look, you're not living according to the gospel. We've been we've been freed from uh, the bondage of having to relate to God uh, by our works, by works of the law. Why are you trying to separate yourself from this group of people when you know what the gospel is about? It's about our freedom in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And so as we enter into this section, what we're getting here is, Um, Some commentators believe that it's the continuation of the argument, um, that continuation of what Paul was saying to Peter. So if you look, uh, the version we're using is the ESV. uh, The quote, the quotation ends after verse 14. In some versions, the quotation goes all the way up to verse 21. Um, But either way, uh, the point that Paul is making is the same. So whether he's commenting on, on it, looking back and saying, this is what I said, um, or if he's uh, making a comment like, okay, I said that, and, th- and now let me explain or unpack what I'm talking about. Um, so Paul is continuing in his line of argumentation. Now, in these verses, as Paul is contending for the gospel, he introduces for the very first time in this book. The idea of the heart of the gospel, which is the title of this message, the heart of the gospel and the heart of the gospel is justification by faith. Say that justification by faith. Say it. One more time. Justification by faith. faith. Now we see this word uh, justified or form of it five times in these short verses. Uh, three times in verse 16 alone, once in verse 17, and again in verse 21. So what we need to do uh, in order to dive into this is unpack this idea of justification by faith. So we're going to spend some time here just lingering on what it means to be justified by faith. Now, from the outset, I have to say that, um, unfortunately, this is something that is not taught in many churches um, this is the kind of thing that a person can go their whole lives in church and surrounded by Christian things and never hear about this teaching or never understand this teaching. Um, one of the most common comments that I get as a person who's involved in hip-hop ministry, as I go abroad and I talk to people um, so many times, and it's, it breaks my heart to hear people say, I've never heard anything about being justified by faith and I grew up in church, and I didn't hear about it until I heard about it in a rap song. That's shame on the church for not being faithful to proclaiming the central point of the gospel. The problem these days is that it's not emphasized You know, the great thing, and Pastor Deuce and Pastor Mace always talk about this, the great thing about going through the scriptures, verse by verse, line by line, is that like we don't have the option to choose what it is we want to talk about. I can't just say, hmm, I want to talk about this. Okay, let me find a text that will agree with what I say and then go from this into the text, but rather, as we're going verse by verse through passages, we're forced To teach whatever the Bible teaches and to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. So if the Bible is going to talk about justification by faith, we're going to talk about justification by faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Justification, it takes us into the realm of the courtroom. It's a legal term. So when you think justification, think court think courtroom. The first thing you want to think is the judge. Now imagine we're, we're in a courtroom, right? The first, per, Usually the judge is the last person to walk in, but in our scenario, the judge is the first one to walk in. The judge is God, God himself. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge. Psalm 98, verse 9, says that God will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Exodus, chapter 34, verse 7, says that God, as judge, will by no means clear the guilty. So the first person to walk into this cosmic courtroom is the judge of the universe, the holy, righteous God who will absolutely judge the world with equity. There won't be any um, shifty balances or scales. God, who sees everything, will judge without partiality. He's the first person that walks in. The second group of people who walk in is the defendants. The defendants, in this case, humanity as a whole. That's us. Every single person who has ever lived by virtue of our birth, we enter life walking into the courtroom, (laughs) okay? Because God has made us, we are accountable to him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So it's no use beefing and saying, Ah, I didn't ask to be here. You're here. And the fact that we're here means that we're accountable to God. The second aspect or the third aspect of this courtroom scenario is the law, the moral law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. Romans 3 verse 19 says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, uh, one, one, of the, uh, one of my favorite podcasts is Way of the Master um, with uh, my man Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. Um, and they do a great job of, in their evangelism, in simply presenting what the law is. Um, oftentimes we go straight to the gospel and skip right over the law. Uh, but one, one of the ways that their um, evangelism presentation looks looks like they'll simply say, um, "Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments?" Yes. Um, have you ever stolen anything, no matter how small it is? Yes. Have you ever lied before? Yes. Everybody lies. Have you ever disobeyed your parents before? Yes. Have you ever killed anybody? No, never killed anybody. Have you ever been angry enough in your heart to want to kill somebody? Because the Lord says that if you harbor anger in your heart, it's as though you murdered. Yes. Have you ever committed adultery? Adultery? What's that? Oh, you mean like cheating on my husband? I'm not married. No. Or if they are married. No, I haven't done that. Oh, okay. But have you ever lusted after anyone? Because Jesus said that if you look at a woman lustfully, it's as though you committed adultery. Yes. Have you ever wanted something that wasn't yours? Longed after something that wasn't yours? Yes. Have you ever misused the name of God, used the name Jesus or God casually? Yes. And then they'll say, okay, by your own admission, you are a lying, stealing, blaspheming, adulterous murderer. (laughs) What do you think should happen to you? We're talking about the law. Now, what also gets tricky about the law is that The only kind of law keeping that God will accept is perfect law keeping. So it's not good enough to be able to check off one and say, well, I didn't do that. Because according to James chapter 2, verse 10, anybody who keeps the whole law and fails at just one point of it is guilty of breaking all of it. It's like a link in the chain, right? A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. In other words, you can—if you remove just—if if you're hanging on a mountainside, off a cliff by a chain, it doesn't matter. Like if you can take the smallest chain and take it out, you're going down to the ground. The law. The next aspect of this courtroom scenario is the verdict. And the verdict biblically for humanity is guilty. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. So according to the word of God, We already come into the world messed up with a bent towards sin. And then we live out that natural bent that we have towards sin every day in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words. The verdict is guilty. And then in every courtroom scenario, you have to have a sentence after the verdict has been announced. And the sentence for guilty lawbreakers is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says that Jesus Christ will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord. So the sentence that our guilt before God brings is a sentence of eternal condemnation under the full weight of the wrath of God. And so this is what we're talking about is the biblical dilemma that humanity finds itself in. We this is a this is a huge dilemma because we have a judge who is objective, right? He's he's inflexible. In other words, if the law is broken, the the judge, as a holy and just judge, must punish. And so the question becomes, as Job put in Job chapter nine verse two, and this is the most profound question that we can ask. How can a man be in the right before God? How can a man be in the right before God? How can sinners be right before God in a way that is consistent with his holiness and with his righteousness? See, nothing else is going to be able to solve this problem. It's not like God can simply say, you know what? Yes, I'm a judge, but I'm also I'm also loving. So, you know what? You've broken my law. You've offended me. You've offended my holiness. You've offended my honor. And so, you know what? Just go ahead. I'll just let you go. Like like God can't do that and he can't do it because he's holy. So the question becomes like like how are we like how is this dilemma going to be solved? And the answer is justification By faith. Justification by faith. We're going to define it. Justification is an act of God by which He declares sinners to be righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Justification is an act of God by which He declares sinners to be righteous. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. So let's unpack it. How does it work? Well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he came to earth and he lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God. It's interesting that Jesus Christ, when he came, he didn't just die right away. It wasn't like he was born in the manger and then a couple days later he died. Because if all he needed to do was just die for us, he could have came, been born, and then died, right? But biblically, Jesus came with a purpose, and part of that purpose was to actually live and fulfill the law of God. He told, he told his hearers in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't come to abolish the law or to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And so what happened was... Jesus lived 33 years of perfect, obedient law keeping. That means that all the things that we talked about, if we were to ask Jesus, have you ever lied? No. Have you ever stolen? No. Have you ever murdered? No. Ever been angry uh, sinfully? No. Ever lusted? No. Jesus' whole life was spent loving the Lord his God with all of his heart all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. Obedient law keeping. But what's amazing is that he wasn't obeying the law simply for his sake, but he was doing it for the sake of others. In other words, Jesus's obedience is not counting for himself, but it's counting for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Mm. that's amazing. The obedience of Jesus Christ, the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, the only kind of obedience that God will take. Jesus Christ himself has lived it out on behalf of others. Now, the other side of it is that after living this life of obedience, perfect obedience to the law of God, Jesus Christ suffers on the cross and He dies a death for all of our law breaking. <laughs> so Jesus Christ, He He never broke the law, but on the cross He was treated as though He was a lawbreaker. Not not only as though He were a lawbreaker, but as though He were the worst lawbreaker in the history of the universe. Because he took infinite, like, the amount of sin that Jesus Christ took in his body on the cross, we can't even calculate it. I can't even calculate the amount of my sin that he took upon himself. Because my sin is, is, is infinite before God. So how much more the sin of every believer who will ever live from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation on the face of the earth from the beginning of time until Jesus Christ comes back. That's what Christ took in himself on the cross, even though he had never committed a sin himself. And so how justification works is that by looking to Christ by faith, what God does is he transfers the, uh, the years of obedience that Jesus Christ and the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned, He transfers it into the account of those who trust in Jesus, so that God looks at us as though we had lived the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. A text that explains this: Second Corinthians 5:21. For our sake. He, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is amazing. This is shout worthy. <laughs> this is dan- pe- People dance and shout about a lot of things. But understand this. You are not righteous. You're not, I'm not righteous. If you think you're righteous, ask your husband or your wife and they'll tell you that you're not righteous. Ask your parents, children, if you're righteous. You're not righteous. But on the, like, like God credits you as though you were perfectly righteous when you trust in Jesus Christ. The flip side of it, Jesus Christ wasn't a sinner. He was perfect. But on the cross, he treated Christ as if Christ had committed all of your sins, all of my sins. Romans chapter four, verses four through five. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited or counted as righteousness. In justification, God finds a way to justify the ungodly. God, He doesn't declare good people to be righteous. In justification, God declares sinners. He declares the wicked. He doesn't... He doesn't look at people who get themselves together. Like, it's not like, Let me, you know what, I got to get right before God. Let me get myself, you know, you know, I would, I would come to church, but I got to, I got to get myself right with God first. Like, if you wait until you get yourself right, you're never going to, it's never going to come. Because you can never get yourself right enough to be seen as perfectly righteous in the sight of a perfectly holy God. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, he justifies the wicked. He doesn't justify moral people. He justifies ungodly, filthy, wretched, dirty sinners like me and you. A good picture of this is in, if you turn with me to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, a banging Old Testament picture of this idea of justification. Zechariah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here we have Joshua, the high priest at that time, seen as the holiest person in Israel. In this vision, he's standing before God and he's filthy. His clothes are absolutely filthy. And this is important because as the high priest, like everything had to be meticulously spotless in order for the high priest to serve before God in the tabernacle. But here's Joshua clothed in filthy, disgusting garments. Not only that, not only does he have his own filthy gear to contend with, but he also has Satan right there pointing at him. Look. Look, he, look, he is filthy. Satan is accusing Joshua before God. He's dirty. You can't let him in. He's unclean. He's ceremonially unfit. He's guilty. That's us. That's us. We're filthy in our sin. We're dirty. We're wretched. All of our righteous acts are like filthy garments. In God's sight. That's the righteous stuff that we do. The the thing that we do on our best day. Our very best evangelistic gospel presentation. Our best quiet time. Our best, most fervent time of prayer and devotion before God. Our best time of service is abominable to a holy God. It's disgusting in his sight. Get it away from them. It's filthy. The best thing that we do. We're not going to talk about the worst thing, but the best. And so Joshua was standing there filthy with Satan. And Satan is right. The Lord rebukes him, but Satan is correct. He's He's filthy. <laughs> But the grace of God, but the grace of God, the angel in verse four says, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove his filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's the great exchange, our filthiness. Is removed from us and placed on Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness. We're clothed in it. That's the meaning of Jeremiah 23 verse 6 in uh, prefiguring what the Lord, who the Lord would be, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. So, justification. Just a couple of things about justification. One, it's a legal. It's a legal thing. Um, It's the exact opposite of condemnation. Uh, Justification is not simply um, acquittal. You know, if someone is brought up on charges and then, you know, in our uh, human courtroom system, people are acquitted. But what acquittal says is that it simply says there's not enough evidence to convict. And so you're innocent as far as the law is concerned because we couldn't convict you. So you're innocent. Go ahead. But that's not what justification is. Justification doesn't say that you're innocent. Justification says you're guilty. You're guilty as far as the law is concerned, but you don't have to pay the penalty because somebody else has paid the penalty on your behalf. It's not acquittal. Big difference. Another aspect of justification, it's legal. It's also final. It's a once for all declaration made in the past. Romans chapter five, verse one says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When a person is justified, they are forever justified. It's not like you become more or less justified after God justifies you. So in other words, we can't. If you're justified today, you're just as justified now as you will be when you get to heaven for eternity. <laughs> you're just as justified now. Assuming you are justified, you're just as justified now as you will be forever in eternity. God doesn't make you more justified, Like it's a completed action in the past. It's final. Romans chapter eight, verse thirty-three: Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Like Satan can't accuse or can't condemn the justified Christian, the redeemed believer. Who's going to bring a charge? Like God has already done everything necessary. God has done the work. It's finished. You're justified. You can't be charged again. You can't be condemned. As far as the law is concerned, like you're good. You're good to go. There's no earthly. There's no earthly examples for this. Like we, when, when we do First Fridays, we did a theme, the theme was justification a couple months ago, and as the team got together to try to brainstorm, like, okay, what movie can we point to that illustrates justification by faith? Uh, what, what cultural, what painting, what, what cultural icon, what, like, what can we use from the culture to display justification? And we couldn't find anything. Like, nothing fit. Like, this is, this is heavenly. This is a heavenly matter. Like, this ju- justification by faith is proof, is one of the proofs that scripture is divine, rather than human in origin. Like, no other religion has this. Other religions have, you work your way to God. You earn yourself a right standing before God. You pray five times a day in order to get God. You do this, you give alms, you do da, da 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 da, and then God, you'll be acceptable before God. Christianity is the only faith that says there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. But God has done everything in Christ to make us right before Him. It's heavenly. It's a heavenly matter. And so that's why we can we should be able to see with this backdrop why Paul is so angry. Go back to uh, here we go back to our text. PowerPoint, the PowerPoint follies. All the way back in the beginning. Okay, well, we're going to go back to our text. Recap. Is that it? Galatians 2. To the beginning. We need to edit this out on the tape. Ah, hey. Okay. So, (laughs) So we can see why Paul is so angry here. Like, look at what God has done. How are we, or how, or in Paul's context, like, like how are you going to try to go back to uh, attempting to please God by your law-keeping after God has already done everything in Christ? Like, it's a slap in the face to try to add anything to the work of Christ. It's spitting on the work, it's spitting on the cross, <laughs> What it's saying is, you know what? Yeah, I see what Jesus did, and amen, and I believe it. But you know what? I want to add my little piece to the puzzle. That's evil. And that's why Paul is so upset. In verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified. By works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul understands that he's saying, look, okay, we're Jews. In other words, we like we have the privileges all of the privileges in terms of being uh, in a relationship with God, according to Romans 9, verse 4, uh, Israel, you know, to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Paul is saying, look, like we have the law of God as it's been revealed to us as Jews, right? And so so we're not Gentile sinners. Now, when he says Gentile sinners, he's not he's not saying that in an absolute sense. He's not saying, okay, as Jews, we're sinless and Gentiles are sinners. But he's saying that as Jews, like we're not sinners in the same way that Gentiles are. Does that make sense? In other words, Gentiles, they didn't have any of the revelation of God. Right. They didn't have like as far as they were they were considered barbarians. They were closed out from all of the promises and all of the stuff that God had been doing all of that time. They were without hope and with God in the world. Paul is saying, as Jews, like, we're not Gentile sinners. We're not sinners in the same way that, that they are. And yet, even though we have the law, like, we understand that the law does not justify. But we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, in verse 17, he says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, Paul is saying, in clinging to Christ by faith, what we're doing is we're laying aside the law as a means of gaining a right standing before God. Right. And so, like, we're falling back from using the law, whether it be the ceremonial law, the dietary laws, um, the, the, uh, the civil law. Like, we're, we're falling back from that. Like, we're not using that as a way of gaining any credit before God. OK. Now. Like, if we do that, does that mean that Jesus Christ is a servant of sin or that he, he promotes sin? Because uh, I believe that's what the Judaizers were accusing Paul of. He's saying, Paul, like, you're, you're, or, or Peter, like, you're, you're trying to get, you're trying to get, uh, how can I put this? Because this is a tough passage, and I, t- I want to try to word it in a way that makes sense. Okay, when you throw off the law of Moses, right, by associating with Gentiles, by sitting around, chilling, kicking it with Gentiles, one of the things that you're saying or what what they accused him of was, okay, you're believing in Christ, but now you're just doing away with Moses. And if you do away with Moses, then you're sinning. So therefore, Christ is causing you to sin or Christ is serving sin. Does that make sense? And Paul says, absolutely not. No, no, that's not what we're saying. Christ is not the agent of sin. Christ is not the servant of sin. He is not the one who promotes sin. And so he continues or he supports this argument in the next verse, verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is it that? Paul is talking, what he's talking about when he says if I rebuild what I tore down. It's pointing us back to this idea of the mosaic law as a way of being right before God. So what did Paul tear down in these previous verses in his argument? Well, he tore down the idea that we're saved by works of the law, right? So Paul is saying, look, if if I try to build back up or put back in place uh, the law as a means of making myself right with God, then I'm in sin by doing that because God has abolished that and it's a new thing um, in in a sense of not like it's always been by faith, but uh, it's new in terms of the revelation of it. Like this is happening through Christ, so it's not about like so if I if I try to bring up the law again as a way of making ourselves like like no, I'm 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 in sin then. So what did he tear down? He tore down the legalistic misuse of the law. The legalistic misuse of the law. The law was never intended to save. The law was always intended to show how far short we fall of fulfilling it so that we would look at it and say, oh, I can't do that. So I need a savior. I'm going to cling to Christ by faith and not. To my law keeping. Paul is tearing down the legalistic misuse of the law. In verse 19, he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So I'm taking Paul is saying I'm taking the very thing that would have condemned me. And through faith in Christ. Like Christ is the one who takes on the burden of both my law keeping and my law breaking in his life and in his death. And so so through the law, like like I'm, I'm done because Christ has taken it. So therefore, as far as the law is concerned, like like I'm dead, like the law has no uh, weight on me in terms of being made right before God. We can picture if we could picture the law like a spinning guillotine that's hanging over top of everybody's head, right? And it's ready to fall down and chop our eternal heads off for disobeying it the moment we disobey it. Well, Paul is saying, look, Christ has gotten under the guillotine and he's taken it. So therefore, the guillotine is no longer over my head. As far as the law is concerned, like, like I'm good, and so now I'm free to live to God. I don't have to live like I don't like I don't have to be caught up with the P's and Q's of the law. Wait, did I do this? Did I do that? I didn't do that. I did this. I did it. it, it, it. Like, like no, like because Christ has did this, did this, did this, did this, did this and didn't do this, didn't do this da, 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 on my behalf. And so therefore, like I don't have to do this. Like, I'm just free to look to God and to live to him in a new way by the spirit. And that takes us right into verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we see him say that he lives by faith in the Son of God, we should should contrast that with by works of the law. Right. So the life I live right now, like I'm living by faith in Christ as opposed to living according to the works of the law in order to make myself pleasing in God's sight. I, like, like that, that way of doing things, it never worked. It never saved anybody. And I'm not going to try to start living by it now after the revelation of Christ has come. So the life I live, I live in the flesh or the life in the flesh that I live, I live by faith. In Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. In verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, we got to go all the way back. Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Romans 11, 6 says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace and works are completely opposed to each other. We we can't mingle them. We can't put them together. They're they're mutually exclusive. One excludes the other. If it's grace, then it's not works. If it's works, then it's not grace. It can't be grace. They don't go together. So, Let's talk about the distinction between law and grace as we get ready to close. The law says, I'm attempting to be saved by what I do. Grace says, I'm saved by what Christ has done. The law relies on my performance. Grace relies on Christ's performance. The law says I gotta get right with God by my effort. Grace says God has declared us right through faith in Christ. The law says obey in order to be saved. Grace says I obey because I am saved. Huge distinction. Part of the problem that we have as, um, you know, as Christians um, and people who, who grew up in Christian homes who may not be Christians is that like, we can, we can tend to look at this passage and, and think that it doesn't really relate to us, but it totally relates to us. Because anything that we try to do to make ourselves acceptable before God, we've moved from grace under the law category. So my question to you is, today, are you trying to be accepted by God through law? Like, what is the basis upon which you're standing or which you're basing your right standing before God? Back then, it was the law of Moses. Today, it's good morals, perhaps. Maybe you're banking on the fact that you've always been a pretty good person. That you've never wilded out like so-and-so did. You've never done the big blatant sins. Maybe you're relying on your knowledge of the word of God. Maybe you're relying on the strength of your prayer life. Whatever it is that you're relying on, if it's not Christ and Christ alone alone, You're under law. You're in bondage. And God is not going to accept it. Legalism. The bondage of legalism. See, legalism is bondage for a number of reasons. It's bondage because, one, when we're legalistic, we can never really admit how guilty and how filthy we are. Because... We're banking our right standing before God on these laws that we've made up. And it's never it's never the like how scrutinizing or how intense the actual law is of God from the Bible. But it's always the it's usually these cultural things that we replace the law. So, you know, so I don't watch these kinds of movies. So therefore, I'm pleasing in God's sight. You know, I don't hang out with that kind of people. So therefore, I must be pleasing in God's sight. I don't listen to that kind of music. Not like you, heathen, who does. You're a heathen. I'm not a heathen because I don't listen to that. Music and movies? Are you kidding me? When it comes to the law of God, you think it's just as easy as avoiding an R-rated movie? Like, we're talking about, we're talking about the holy God who judges everything. He judges our thoughts. You might avoid a certain kind of movie, but you have an R-rated thought life. You think you're right before God because of the the kind of music that you choose not to listen to? Are you kidding me? God is holy. He's perfectly holy. Legalism is bondage. Because we have to, when we're legalistic, we gotta keep up a front. We have to keep a smile plastered on our face. We can't, I can't let anybody know I'm struggling. (laughs) Because I'm trying to earn. I'm trying to earn. It's bondage. The legalist looks down on others self-righteously. The legalist makes a standard and then attempts to keep it and then looks at everybody else who's not keeping it and says, they can't be saved. They can't be saved. And they're not not basing it off of the scriptures, but basing it off of cultural conformity or non-conformity the problem with the legalist is that the legalist doesn't really understand the law of God doesn't really understand what the law truly demands because if we truly understood what the law of God demands we would know we can't keep it I I don't have that power now one point or one caveat that should be added in is that God, by his grace, when we come to him through faith in Jesus Christ, he empowers us to walk uprightly before him. And we praise God for that. But what we have to understand is that our walking upright before him is not the basis by which he accepts us. Even though we're called to walk upright before him. You see the balance? It's a tricky balance. Because on the one extreme, like we'll, we'll say... Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, amen, amen, hallelujah. And then let me wild out, and I can wild out because I'm saved by grace through faith, and I can live any kind of way I want to. I can live like the devil, hallelujah. (laughs) Like, Christians don't even talk like that. That's not even how Christians should talk. But then the flip side of it is if you're not holy, by the way that the culture or by the way that I'm through my legalistic eyes is judging holy, then, nah, like, you're a you're heathen. You're not in the right standing with God. So we want to, like, we want to walk that fine line of I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ, and because I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ, I'm now Endeavoring to walk uprightly before God, not in a way that would save me, but in a way that would demonstrate that I'm saved. That's Christianity. That's what Paul is calling us to. He's calling us to the freedom of grace. The freedom of grace. How freeing is it to know that God is not up in heaven grading us? On our performance. Because Christ has performed it. Paul understood this. And as I close, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. And I'll read this before we close. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. I'm going to start at verse 4. with all of those credentials, even with all of those credentials. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's pray.